Good Friday evening. I'm Shane Foxman. Ben is off this week. Thanks for spending your Earth Day uh, with us. Uh, we continue to delve into uh, everything environmental. It is the weekly journal corner uh, here on a little more conversation. Tonight's guest, Emma McIntosh, environment uh, reporter in Ontario for the Narwhal. Uh, Emma, thanks for joining us. Hi, it's good to be here. Happy Earth Day. Happy Earth Day. Now, before we get into anything, I would think that, you know, for sports reporters, you know, the Stanley Cup playoffs come, they're excited. For political reporters, when it's the election, is Earth Day your Super Bowl kind of thing? Is is everything geared about this day? (laughs) That's a great question. You've actually caught kind of an Earth Day curmudgeon. I've been a bit (laughs) of a grump about it. Um, And that's usually because I find a lot of politicians use it as, an opportunity to pontificate or to claim they're doing a good job. Um, And I would much rather talk about big collective actions, maybe. But uh, but it's still fun. It's still a good reason to, to think about the planet. No, for sure. And, and I'm just curious, were you a, a journalist first and then got into uh, environmental issues? Or were you an environmentalist that decided, you know what, I want to get into journalism? A journalist first, for sure. I always loved nature. But um, I thought I would maybe cover crime or City Hall. And it wasn't until uh, 2016 when I was doing an internship, mostly covering crime uh, at the Calgary Herald, when uh, the Fort McMurray wildfires hit. And all of a sudden, climate and climate emergencies um, were right in front of my eyes. And uh, that kind of sent me on this whole journey. It's interesting. So at that point, you just go, you know what, I'm going to focus my energy uh, on environmental stories. Uh, has it been, as you say, you know, today you're a bit of a curmudgeon because you see, you know, a lot of lip service. Has it been uh, an inspiring journey for you so far, or has it been uh, disheartening at times too when you see, as you say, uh, you know, one side of it and the other? Sometimes it is really disheartening. Um, and I think it would be kind of silly to deny that, of course. Like when you're really steeped in the facts, uh, it, it doesn't always feel great. But I think the really wonderful thing that covering climate has showed me is how many people who are way smarter than me, by the way, have have turned their minds to solving this problem and have figured out so many of the solutions we already need and and how people like five, ten years younger than me are already doing so much. It really makes me feel really hopeful for our future. And I really actually mean that. I know it sounds unbelievable, but I really do. No, well, it's good to have some positivity because let's be honest, when it comes to the environment, uh, Again, we talked about this uh, earlier, uh, you know, in journalism, if it bleeds, it leads. Uh, the, the more scary the news, the more uh, uptight they can make you. That's where it runs in the newscast. The good news kind of runs way later. So we're inundated with bad news about the environment. If we don't do something now, it's too late or it's already too late, which kind of gets people kind of on edge. And maybe, you know, as you say, there are reasons to be positive. Oh, there absolutely are. Um, and I think it's really important that we remember that too. Like, Um, I don't know how the weather is where you are, but today in Toronto, it was one of those beautiful spring days that makes you happy to be alive. Um, A day where it is too nice to feel sad (laughs) or too nice to feel despair. And I think we have to hang on to those moments because so much of what we have is still there and still worth saving. And we can, we can save it. I wouldn't do this job if I didn't think it was possible. No, it would get it would get very difficult. Um, let me ask you. you mentioned Toronto. I, I I grew up there. I live out west now. But I notice that every time I go back, it seems like the city's bigger. 
It's just gotten bigger and bigger. And I don't mean just mean people just I, I, like sprawling out. Like it used to be that you would drive between cities uh, and you would have farmland or just open space. But now it, everything is filled in. Um, am I, am, is that just an observation from someone who's moved away and comes back? Or is that really what's going on? No, that really is what's going on. Um, that's kind of been the, the way that local planning has worked for, well, pretty much ever since the end of World War II, honestly. Um, every time we need more housing, we've tended to just build out, and um, and now we're way out there. Yeah, you're not wrong at all. So, and what sort of issues does that, does that cause? Like, I imagine just because then you need infrastructure and everything else that goes with it. Oh, yeah, it's a whole barrel of problems. So, first of all, um, when you build more homes further away from cities, you got to build infrastructure to get there. That means you have to build roads. Um, that means, in a lot of cases, because we don't have perfect transit everywhere or even adequate transit in most places, you're building communities that are entirely reliant on cars, um, which might be convenient, but... From a climate perspective, it's really not very good. Uh, those cars generate emissions, and even if they were all electric tomorrow, that wouldn't entirely solve the problem. Um, so that's one aspect of it, obviously. The, the air pollution and the health effects of that are another. Um, beyond that, when you eat up farmland like that or green space, you're actually making climate worse in another way. And that's because farmland and green spaces are a carbon sink. They absorb uh, carbon from the landscape. And if we eliminate that, we not only lose their ability to help us in the future, we lose what they were holding on to. Um, so that's not good. And then we also lose the ability to grow our own local food there, which I think many people have realized is more important than ever with all of the supply chain, uh, supply chain challenges that have come up with COVID. I mean, being able to produce things close to where we live um, is a really huge concern for many people and it hasn't been for a long time. Um, and so, yeah, those are things we have to keep in mind. You know, it's funny you mentioned growing food. Uh, we, we had a, someone on earlier this week, we were talking about vertical farming and about how that would be something, you know, you could have in urban areas and you could, uh, you know, have your own food supply chain kind of thing. And it, it's interesting, as you said, there, there are people out there trying to come up with ways uh, to make things better. Uh, just one last thing on the sprawl. It, it, as you said, is, did it just become it was the easiest thing to do? Like, as opposed to trying to come up with anything else, I guess the easiest thing to do was, well, there's some land right there. We can just build some more houses, put a road out there, and that'll take care of that. Well, it's a little more complicated than that. I think for a long time, a lot of us bought into this, um, this concept called the myth of abundance, um, that there's so much land, so many resources, especially in Canada, um, that we're not going to run out. Um, and so we have space to expand forever. That was tr proven false, and now people are reckoning with that. If you look at Mississauga um, to the west of Toronto, they're going to run out of land in the next few years here. They've officially allocated development to every single bit of Greensville that they had. And so once that's gone, that's gone. There's nowhere else to go but up. Um, and I think also Greenfield land development like that is the most lucrative, and that's why developers have pushed it that way, right? Um, it's, like you said, it's easy money. Um, and I think that moving into the future, we're soon going to be forced to be more creative <laughs> when that land runs out. Yeah, there's not going to be a choice. Well, here, I'm in Vancouver, and it's all about building up. Uh, 
Uh, there is no land. You know, it is a super uh, small city, and uh, it, it uh, yeah, there's nowhere to go anymore except up. Um, you know, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, uh, as we said, Emma mentioned, uh, there's a lot of things to be positive about, too. So we'll delve into Sue, a few of the positive things out there that give us hope that we are moving in the right direction. Emma McIntosh is our guest, Ontario Environment Reporter with the Narwhal. I'm Shane Foxman. You're listening to A Little More Conversation. Ben is off this week. My name is Shane Foxman. Thanks for spending part of your Friday evening with us. Uh, we're in the middle of our uh, weekly feature, uh, Journal Corner. Our guest is uh, Emma McIntosh, an Ontario environment reporter with the Narwhal. So we've talked uh, about your journey and we've talked about some, you know, not so great news. Now let's focus on the positive. Uh, Emma, what's, as you said earlier, you know, Sometimes it can be frustrating, but sometimes you can only see people uh, younger than us, way smarter than us, doing some great things. Uh, what has you optimistic? What are you seeing out there? Well, I think for starters, um, just to even look at our past, we can see how we're capable of a huge transformative change. I'll give you an example of that. Um, when I was growing up, and I'm going to date myself here. <laughs> um, I was the period I'm referring to is the early 2000s. Yes. Oh my God! Yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think I you're dating up, me, but yes. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> well, when I was growing up, smog days were a big thing. I remember in the summer, you know, there were days where it just was yucky outside. The air was brown. It was not good. Um, Ontario's last smog day was in 2014, and we made that happen by phasing out coal. That is a huge societal change, and we did that, and the air is cleaner because of it. Um, another big issue from when I was a kid, the ozone layer. Do you remember when oh. everyone was talking about the ozone layer? Yeah, you couldn't use aerosol sprays. That was the big thing. Uh, yeah, oh, for sure. Yeah, and guess what? The ozone layer, because we phased out those harmful chemicals, is going to repair itself by the end of the century. It's on track. We're rocking. So those, okay, those are very positive. But do you think it has to be, for us to do anything, does the... Uh, the repercussions have to be really tangible, like in the sense of, you know, we didn't, it's hard to convince people to do anything about smog unless they're really seeing it and being very uncomfortable about it. And you say we were, we were hit over the head with ozone layer, a hole in the ozone layer. It was nonstop. Uh, what was it? Was it CF, CFBs? There was something in, in air conditioning and in fridges and in, that was all kind of uh, feeding that. I can't remember the, the right, uh, the right term, but do you, does it have to be tangible for us to do anything? Like, do we have to almost be on the brink of something? Sometimes it feels that way. I never know for sure, but I do know that the people I've met who are most um, ready for change and willing to, to accept changes that might be big or difficult are the people who are really on the front lines of climate change. Um, I lived in Alberta for a while. People living in Banff, for example, where they've had wildfires come knocking on their door, um, they are willing to take those steps. Uh, even in BC, where people have dealt with the heat dome and the atmospheric rivers, there's a much broader acceptance than in some other areas of Canada. Um, I wish it didn't have to be that way right. and that we didn't all have to get smacked over the head with it. But, you know, even um, not to always bring it back to the center of the universe, yeah. but last summer in Toronto, there was a day when wildfire smoke made the sky here go orange. And I'm used to that being from the West, but 
for a lot of people I knew that was the first time they experienced it and it wasn't even that bad. <laughs> right, right. But it was a wake up call for a lot of people, right? And so we're gonna have more and more of those wake up call moments. I think beyond that, um climate is a movement that's time has come. We see that in a lot of ways. You know, climate finance and um, green finance is a movement that is really taking off. Um, there's real momentum now and we can always push harder for more things to happen, but um but it, it's moment has come. You know, we were talking to a guest earlier tonight and we were uh, wondering, does it take, does the government follow the people? Like once people start taking, uh, taking notice and doing something, the government kind of reacts? Or do we need the government to lead the way and go, no, hard decisions, unpopular decisions, but we need to do something? Uh, or it's probably, as we probably guess, somewhere in between. Yeah, I think probably it is because it kind of feeds both ways, right? There needs to be a bit of something um, from the people. And then there needs to be a brave politician who's willing to take a stand on it and gamble. Um, and we can see through history a ton of times where those gambles have worked out really, really well. Um, we, can, we can see other times when maybe it didn't work out. Um, but I think it's important to remember that this stuff can make a difference. It, it feels pretty futile sometimes, but I'll give you an example. Um, a study that happened between 2016 and 2019 found that um, roughly 2,000 laws worldwide were actually working to bring down greenhouse gas emissions. Um, overall, are emissions going down? No. But those laws did something. Um, and so we just need more of that, really. Is there, is there too much... I don't want to say doom and gloom in the in the environment world because it is serious and we have to get on it. But it, it seems that almost uh, you know some parts of the population have tuned it out, like they've heard it for so long they don't believe it anymore because nothing's. Again, if you're not really affected, as you say, by the flooding or the atmospheric rivers or the different storms and the different weather climate changes, uh, which is hard to imagine that you're not affected by it. It seems like it's everywhere. Uh, but there still seems to be people that don't buy into this at all, that don't think it's that big of a deal. It'll take care of itself. I, I'm always surprised when I run into that, but you're right. It is out there. I think um, I think maybe that's where we come in. Maybe um, journalists, I think about this a lot, how we can do a better job of communicating to people how their lives are already changing. Um, I mean, if you think about it, like when you were a kid, you used to go tobogganing all the time, right? Like every all the winter, time. All you know, the time. I guess not in Vancouver as much. No, but, I, grew up, uh, um, I grew up, I grew up in <laughs> Toronto, but yes, tobogganing for sure. Yeah, and now, you know, we're, we're lucky if we get in a few days where there's enough snow for that. Um, and I think once you start communicating that to people and reminding them, you know, um, I have grandparents who garden. The same things that they grew 20 years ago don't grow so well anymore in every case. Um, if we remind people that their lives are actually already shifting in these little tiny ways, that actually there's a whole bunch of little inconveniences that are piling up at this point, Maybe it's easier to see, but that's something I'm always working on, right? Trying to, trying to figure out the best way to, to keep people from, from losing interest and from losing hope, too, because I think without hope, there's no point. No, for sure. And, you know, you're so right. I, again, grew up in Toronto. I remember walking to school in the snow. I remember shoveling all the time, constantly. Uh, and then when I, after I moved away, I don't know, about 20-odd years ago, uh, oh, longer already. Wow, I am dating myself. Say 30 years ago. Now when I go back and if I come to Toronto in the wintertime and I'm flying in, it's brown grass. There is no snow. 
And I always think, uh, how amazing, like, how can you not see what's going on if, if you're living it and living through it? Which makes it even more interesting that the younger generation seems to be the ones that are taking this even more seriously, because they didn't see what it was like before. They just know what it is now. Yeah, yeah. I think it, it's really interesting to see how that plays out. But um, I guess sometimes a fresh set of eyes can show you the way, right? Um without having the jadedness that older generations might have or like fears about how things could go wrong. It can, um, it can be a powerful thing. No. Well, uh, Emma, uh, thanks for joining us tonight. Uh, keep up the good work. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Always a joy.